And I want to invite you to join me in John 17. We're back in John's gospel. We're going to continue verse by verse through the rest of John's gospel. And as best I can tell, in May, we're going to turn to 1 Kings. So, um, but we enter back in to John chapter 17. It's been some time since we were here. So let me set the scene for you. This is the tail end of what is known as the farewell discourse. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They have most likely just finished the Lord's Supper. And as they prepare to go out from that upper room, Jesus is here praying. I believe you're allowed to have favorite passages in Scripture. (laughs) I commend John 17 to you as a worthy option. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It is beautiful. We're going to spend the next three weeks unpacking this prayer. And different people break this out in different ways. The first five verses, some would say, is Jesus. Not some would say, it is Jesus praying for himself. The next uh, verses 6 through 19 or or Jesus praying for the disciples. And then verses 20 through the end of the chapter or Jesus praying for the broader church. And while that's true, it's, I don't think, helpful to break those out in terms of the recipients of the prayer. Because all of it is a prayer for the disciples. All of it is a prayer for us here. So as we consider this chapter I want us to look at it today in the first five verses as a prayer for glory. Next week, we'll look to a prayer for truth. And the following week, we'll look to a prayer for unity. As we prepare to, to read these first five verses, I want to ask you to join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, these are your words. This is your prayer. Yes, it is a prayer for you, but it is also a prayer for us. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us, through this prayer, a greater sense of your glory and a greater rootedness in you. Do this, we ask, in your name. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. The Westminster Shorter Catechism opens with question one. What is the chief end of man? It answers that question, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Similarly, the Heidelberg Catechism opens with question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? 
And the beginning of that answer that it gives is this, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So these catechisms of the Christian church are teaching a powerful truth. And that truth is that there is a paradigm by which we are to live. The paradigm is this. We are not at the center of the universe. We're not. Try as we may, there is another. The Lord Jesus Christ. And He is to be the focus of our heart. The focus of our very lives is to be on Him in all things. And for most of us, that truly is a paradigm shift. Narcissism is a word that we throw out probably too frequently. Narcissism is, after all, a clinical diagnosis. And yet, many of us live with narcissistic tendencies. We live with self at the center putting ourselves at the center of the universe, and we consider the inputs around us through the lens of self, or we don't consider those inputs because we're looking at the world through the lens of self. There is also a spiritual narcissism that treats God as a deity meant to serve us, the great Siri in the sky. Few of us would say it, but do your prayers reflect it? Does your inability, or rather unwillingness to receive shepherding counsel, reflect it that we put ourselves at the center of the universe, the spiritual universe, and see all things as reinforcing that place? All of us, to some degree, wrestle with this struggle, but praise be to God, we have an all-glorious, all-gracious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the only one who has ever walked the face of the earth who is truly free of these struggles. We must hear that and be rooted in it and acknowledge it. As we see the way that he opens this prayer. Jesus opens this prayer. He opens it with what may seem to be a contradiction in terms. A humble prayer for glory. If you look at your bulletin, you'll see and notice, guess what? This is a three-point sermon. (laughs) But as we consider the flow of this sermon, it's going to seem a bit asymmetrical. We're going to spend more time in this first point. And so let's do just that. This is quite obviously a prayer. We need to acknowledge that. But why is a prayer here in Scripture? Do you ever ask yourself about this prayer of Jesus or other prayers? Why are they here? If we look to the Bible as an instruction manual for how to live life, well, then that truth is going to be somewhat difficult for us. Certainly going to make application from this text. But in these verses, 
And in all of this chapter, there are no imperatives. There are no instructions given to us about how we are to live. So why is it here? Why do we have this prayer of Jesus? Again, if the Bible is merely a set of instructions, we're going to struggle. Well, one of the reasons I believe this prayer is here so beautifully. It beautifully points us to the heart of Jesus. But in seeing the heart of Jesus, it also has the effect of shaping our prayers. Shaping our very lives. How does it do so? Well, it does so from the very beginning. Jesus opens his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Now, I know it's been a little while since we last left John's gospel account, but if you recall earlier in our time in this gospel, we, we heard repeatedly this discussion about the hour. And I said early on in John's gospel, the hour is pointing forward to another hour. But here we come to that hour, and the hour here is crucifixion. It is the hour of Jesus' suffering. What he's saying is that that hour of crucifixion, of suffering, ultimately of death, is the hour of glory, and it has now come. Jesus knows it. Jesus knows that this is the plan. It has always been the plan. It's not plan B. The Lord God designed it, ordained it from before the beginning of time. And it is now. And so as Jesus opens his prayer in this way, he is making a very clear statement of the sovereignty of God. Some of us wonder... If God is sovereign, if God already knows, why should we be praying? It's already going to happen, right? But what you see here in Jesus' prayer is that his sovereignty is the basis behind the request. The eternal plan is taking place, so Jesus prays for it to do so. The sovereignty of God is, is an incentive to pray. God has ordained the end, but he's also ordained the means by which he brings about that end. That doesn't compute in our minds. But we see it throughout Scripture that Jesus here is praying that God indeed would fulfill his eternal purposes. And that purpose that Jesus prays for is spelled out in this prayer as the purpose of glorifying the Son. At that point, we need to slow down just a little bit, and we need to define some terms. Glorify is one of those terms that we throw out, but don't often understand what we are speaking of. What does it mean to glorify? Well, biblically, to glorify does not mean to make glorious. It means to reveal glory. So what's the difference between the two? Well, let's, let's explore that difference by exploring a contrast. What if instead of Jesus praying this prayer, glorify me, what if I were asking God to glorify me? Maybe consider for a moment I was, uh, I was on American Idol. <laughs> Not to mention, parenthetically, 
that idolatry is the sin in Scripture. Uh, but let's imagine for a second that's where I am. And, and I'm asking, Lord, glorify me. What am I saying there? I'm saying, Lord, make me glorious. Shine the spotlight on me. I will not sing. <laughs> There'd be nothing glorious about that. But think about what's going on with this spotlight. I am trying to draw attention to myself. It is a gloriousness that is coming from outside me. I'm asking God to make me awesome <laughs> with the notion that glorifying is dependent upon something external to me, drawing attention to me, make me appear glorious, make me bright and famous, hence the spotlight. Now let's consider a different understanding of glorify. Thanks, guys. Not glorify me, but Jesus saying glorify me. See, for Jesus, it's different. It's not dependent upon something external. It's not make me glorious. It's reveal what is already true. And so in that case, it's not a picture of the spotlight, but a different picture that we see in the gospel accounts, the picture of the transfiguration. You see that story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in the transfiguration, Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter and James and John. And there, before these men, he transfigured outwardly his glory. Scripture tells us that his face shone like the sun, not because the sunlight was on him, not because the Father was shining the spotlight on him, but because he was revealing the glory with which he had, the glory that he had from before the beginning of time. It was a glory that was outward. It was his. Jesus was emanating glory. The glory he had always possessed, but for a time had hidden. That's what it means to glorify, though. What, what do we mean by glory? I said that it is, is not the light, or maybe I should say it's not the light. The light is radiating the glory that he has. The impression of the underlying glory. Glory in the New Testament, the word here in, in John 17, and in the Greek it's doxa. It's rooted in the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod is, is weightiness. Kavod is substance. Kavod is, is heaviness. It's substantial. It is the substance of his being. We talk about gravitas. How do we see gravitas? In Jesus. It's the picture of glorify in the transfiguration. I think there's another picture that gets at this, this weightiness of his being, of this glory. It's a picture of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee in the boat with his disciples. He's asleep. They're terrified because there is a storm raging about. 
What are the disciples doing? That storm is, is tossing and turning them. They're flitting about terrified, but Jesus wakes up, calmly rebukes the wind and the waves. Peace, be still. And at the utterance, quiet. That is glory. That is weightiness. That is heaviness. It is a weightiness that is not buffered about by the storms of life, physical or otherwise. It's the opposite of the feather that blows with the shifting winds of emotion, of opinion, of culture. It's a glory that is rooted because it is a glory that is a matter of his very being. That is glory. So how do we see it in Jesus' prayer? Well, we see it in his perfect obedience. An obedience that would take him to death and death on the cross. We see it in his infinite love for sinners like us. We see it in his defeat over Satan, even at the point where Satan finally thinks he's got the upper hand. And yet the cross is the point of Satan's ultimate defeat. We see the glory of Jesus as the Father is glorifying him. But why is he praying this prayer? Why is Jesus asking for his glory to be revealed, to be glorified? Unlike us, unlike the request for the spotlight, there is a humility in Jesus' request. Not an awe-shucks denial of reality, but rather a deep embrace of reality. But that embrace is meant to serve a purpose. That by means of His glory, He might glorify the Father. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. We can't see God the Father, but we see God the Son. And God the Son reveals to us the heart of God the Father, the glory of God the Father. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. And Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. That is why he prays. What's the content? The spe- the, what specifically is he asking and how is he asking this glory to be revealed? It's a deep connection, as we've said, between glory and our, our, our impression of that glory, our experience of that glory. And we see it here in a couple of ways. Jesus' prayer for, to be glorified is, is a prayer for a glory that we experience in redemption. The latter portion of verse 1 and verse 2, Jesus prays, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The glory of Jesus is deeply connected to his authority, an authority that extends over all mankind. But with that authority, Jesus gives eternal life to the elect. That's right. This gift of redemption 
that we have in Jesus Christ is for the elect of God, those whom the Father has given to the Son. That is what Jesus is praying here in the text. Do you struggle with that scope of redemption, the scope of redemption that is laid out for us very clearly in the text? Why is that? Please know that the gospel is available to all. It's freely offered to all, but only the elect will respond because God has first moved in them. Some of us struggle with this because we want desperately to put the power of our salvation in the hands of man, or rather in the hands of me. But that's not grace. And it's also not Scripture. Jesus saves those who have been given to him. And what that means for us is that Jesus has actually accomplished salvation. It is finished. It is done. He did it. Maybe we struggle with this because we are so frequently taking our focus off of the glory of God. Maybe we struggle with it because in taking our focus off of the glory of God, we begin to wrestle with fairness or we begin to try and assert our measure of fairness and hold God up to our level. It's a dangerous proposition and one ultimately that none of us desire. Maybe it's a struggle with authority. We don't want any form of authority over us, even if that authority is King Jesus. But in his word, King Jesus is praying that his glory would be revealed and experienced through the redemption that he accomplished on the cross. The hour refers to the hour of the cross, and maybe that's where we struggle most. We take our eyes, our focus off of the cross. Very few of us want a notion of Christianity that is rooted in suffering. We don't want a religion based on the shame of the cross. We prefer the prosperity gospel even when we speak against it. We're tempted to take our eyes off of the cross. But that is where Jesus' glory was manifested most fully. And there on the cross... He took on death vicariously and willingly for sinners like you and me. We didn't deserve it. We didn't, nor can we earn it. We simply receive it by grace alone. And if you are seated here today and you hear of this redemption, this salvation, and desire this salvation in Jesus Christ, then that is evidence of the Holy Spirit moving in you, of God by His own sovereign grace drawing you to Himself. Do not resist Him. Take hold of this salvation through faith alone. And by faith, experience the beautiful truth that our God is glorified in and through His gracious blessing of us.
That's what Jesus describes his glory, a glory that we experience in redemption. But he goes on in verse 3 to say that this glory is one that we experience in relationship. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not so much a definition of eternal life, but rather a description of how it is manifested. Maybe you recall in our, our last sermon series on heaven, we talked about eternal life, everlasting life, is not merely uh, endless life. It's not merely an endless string of days, but of the fullness of life meant for us to experience eternally. Jesus is telling us here in John 17, in his prayer, ultimately a prayer for us, that we would experience that fullness in the context of knowing. By knowing, I don't mean merely an intellectual knowledge of. One commentator summarized it this way, this knowing is a joyful acknowledgement of his sovereignty. It is a glad acceptance of his love, and it is an intimate fellowship with his person. In all of that, we're talking about union in Christ. Union in Christ sounds like a very uh, a high theology. It's It's our experience of relationship with Jesus, but that union in Christ is not something that we'll experience upon our death. It's an eternal life, a fullness of eternal life, marked by knowing that we experience now at the point of our conversion. Galatians 2.20 speaks of it this way, We have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is knowing, that is union, and that is eternal life that we get to taste now and enjoy more fully in eternity in the very presence of Jesus. And so, when we Put all of this together with Jesus' prayer for glory, we begin to see that our knowing Him relationally is the evidence of His glory and the means by which we experience and enjoy His glory. That's Jesus' prayer. That's the prayer for us. It's beautiful. So what are we to do with it? We're people who have to have something to do, right? So what do we do with this? Remember, there's no imperative statements in these five verses, nor in the whole chapter. And yet, we're shaped by this prayer. This prayer is at least partially answered when we see that the eternal glory of Christ is is seen most, most clearly through the lens of the cross. And thereby see the glory of the Father with greater clarity. Seeing His glory in this way shapes us so that we can experience, be rooted in, and reflect His glory in all of life. Again, so what do we do with that? We talked about a paradigm at the beginning 
of the sermon, the paradigm where we are not at the center of the universe, but Jesus is at the center of the universe. When we, when we make that paradigm shift, we're living by a Latin phrase, three words, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Now, on some level, soli deo gloria uh, it, it means that we are to give glory, to, to honor. In other words, give credit where credit is due. You no doubt know the name Johann Sebastian Bach, even if you can't roll off the tip of your tongue the musical pieces that he composed. What you may not know is that at the end of each piece of music that Bach composed, he scribbled three little letters. S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. Bach was trying to say that if there is anything good in this music, then it is by God's glory and for God's glory. What are we to do in answer to Jesus' prayer? Well, on some level, we're to give credit where credit is due. We're to honor Christ with our lives. But glorifying is more than merely honoring. It is that, but it is more. It is living in the light of the weightiness of the glory of Jesus. So an outworking of this Prayer is to glorify God by living weighty lives, lives of, of substance. Jesus, in praying this prayer, is showing that he is centered by and in the Father. His glory is rooted in the glory of the Father. Like that rootedness, this weightiness that is immovable that is unshakable, regardless of the storm. What storm are you experiencing right now? Is it the storm of relational strife? Maybe that relational strife exists within your own family. Maybe it exists in your friend group. If we're looking to those relationships for our rootedness, then the storm will toss us about like a feather in the wind. But, on the other hand, if our rootedness is in Christ Jesus, our rock, then we will have an ability to remain steadfast. Not despairing in the conflicts, not chasing approval, not succumbing, to peer pressure. It's a life of substance, a life of weight that is intimately connected to Jesus in union with Him. And because it is intimately connected to Jesus in union with Him, it can be intimately connected to our family, to our friends, without deriving our identity from them. Because our identity is weighted in, rooted in Christ. Now, how do we get that? That's what we want to know. That sounds great. Well, I think it begins with an understanding that this glory that Jesus prays about is a glory that pre-existed us. At the end of this passage, 
Jesus prays for the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Because this glory pre-exists us, it means this. We do not bear the weight of maintaining glory. Hear that. We do not bear the weight of maintaining glory. We simply are invited to share in it and enjoy it. And brothers and sisters, that frees us from chasing glory. Because our glory is in Christ. The outcome of the storm, whatever that storm may be, will not impact it because we are to remain rooted in Christ. Solideo Gloria means that we live rooted, weighty lives, but it also means that we live radiant lives. When our strength and our identity is in Jesus, we are then free to enjoy Him relationally. That enjoyment means that we honor Him, but it is also the means by which we honor Him. And when we're honoring Him through our enjoyment, then that is contagious. The world sees it and the world wants it. Enjoyment reflects, it radiates His glory outward. But ultimately, we've got to know this. Glorifying God and enjoying Him is not primarily a matter of our doing. It is a matter of our being. Therefore, it's a, it's a posture. I know that there is a certain danger when I put up Johann Sebastian Bach as an example of how we glorify God. Because some of us hear that and think, oh my, is that what I've got to do in order to glorify God? It's the same danger we face when we look at the world around us and sometimes see news of big, famous, spiritual movements. And we think that to glorify God is to recreate those. To recreate some movement. Something in us desires to do that. And on some level, yes, we want to do it to bring glory to God. But let's be honest, there are also sinful self-motivations involved in that. We think that we're called to glorify God by doing something big and famous for Him. But also, we desire to draw attention to ourselves. It's the selfie culture that pervades the church. And it's taking over our very lives. And that means perhaps the greatest, sweetest takeaway from Jesus' prayer is this. The glory of God is not a glory that is manufactured. It is a glory that is revealed. So to live for His glory is not to try and manufacture or recreate some famous event. Called rest in his redemption, in relationship with him, and to radiate his glory simply for his glory. This is what it means to be rooted, to live weighty lives, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. Praise be to our God. Father, 
thank you that this is your call in our lives to enjoy you. Thank you that this is our call, the call that you've placed on our lives, not to, not to do big things fast and famous, but to be rooted in Christ. So I pray that you would free us from the weight of trying to manufacture or, or maintain glory. Give us the ability to simply rest in your glory. And that ultimately is for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.